Fourth Reverie, Section Two, Part Four of Reveries of a Bachelor by Eke Marvel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. College. Schoolmates slip out of sight and knowledge and are forgotten, or if you meet them, they bear another character. The boy is not there. It is a new acquaintance that you make, with nothing of your fellow upon the benches but the name. Though the eye and face cleave to your memory, and you meet them afterward, and think you have met a friend, the voice or the action will break down the charm, and you find only another man. But with your classmates in that later school, where form and character were both nearer ripeness, and where knowledge labored for together, bred the first manly sympathies, it is different. And as you meet them, or hear of them, the thought of their advance makes a measure of your own. It makes a measure of the now. You judge your happiness by theirs, of your progress by theirs, and of your prospects by theirs. If one is happy, you seek to trace out the way by which he has wrought his happiness. You consider how it differs from your own, and you think with sighs how you might possibly have wrought the same. But now it has escaped. If another has won some honourable distinction, you fall to thinking how the man, your old equal, as you thought, upon the college benches, has outrun you. It pricks to effort, and teaches the difference between now and then. Life, with all its duties and hopes, gathers upon your present like a great weight, or like a storm ready to burst. It is met anew, it pleads more strongly and action that has been neglected rises before you, a giant of remorse. Stop not, loiter not, look not backward, if you would be among the foremost. The great now, so quick, so broad, so fleeting, is yours. In an hour it will belong to the eternity of the past. The temper of life is to be made good by big, honest blows. Stop striking, and you will do nothing. Strike feebly, and you will do almost as little. Success rides on every hour. Grapple it, and you may win. But without a grapple, it will never go with you. Work is the weapon of honor, and who lacks the weapon will never triumph. There were some seventy of us, all scattered now. I meet one here and there, at wide distances apart, and we talk together of old days, and of our present work and life, and separate. Just so, ships at sea, in murky weather, will shift their course to come within hailing distance, and compare their longitude, and part. One I have met wandering in southern Italy, dreaming, as I was dreaming, over the tomb of Virgil, by the dark grotto of Pausilippo. It seemed strange to talk of our old readings in Tacitus, there upon classic ground. But we did, and we ran on to talk of our lives, and, sitting down upon the promontory of Bailly, looking off upon that blue sea, as clear as the classics, we told each other our respective stories. And two nights after, upon the quay, in sight of Vesuvius, which shed a lurid glow upon the sky that was reflected from the white halls of the Hôtel de Russie, and upon the broad lava pavements, we parted he to wander upon the isles of the Aegean, and I to turn northward. 
Another time, as I was wandering among those mysterious figures that crowd the foyer of the French opera upon a night of the masked ball, I saw a familiar face. I followed it with my eye until I became convinced. He did not know me until I named his old seat upon the bench of the division rooms and the hard-faced tutor G. Then we talked of the old rivalries and Christmas jollities, and of this and that one whom we had come upon in our wayward tracks, while the black-robed grisettes stared through their velvet masks. Nor did we tire of comparing the old memories with the unearthly gaiety of the scene about us until daylight broke. In a quiet mountain town of New England, I came not long since upon another. He was hale and hearty, and pushing his lawyer work with just the same nervous energy with which he used to recite a theorem of Euclid. He was father, too, of a couple of stout, curly-pated boys, and his good woman, as he called her, appeared a sensible, honest, good-natured lady. I must say that I envied him his wife, much more than I had envied my companion of the opera, his domine. I happened only a little while ago to drop into the college chapel of a Sunday. There were the same hard oak benches below, and the lucky fellows who enjoyed a corner seat were leaning back upon the rail, after the old fashion. The tutors were perched up in their side-boxes, looking as prim and serious and important as ever. The same stout doctor read the hymn in the same rhythmical way, and he prayed the same prayer for, I thought, the same old sort of sinners. As I shut my eyes to listen, it seemed as if the intermediate years had all gone out, and that I was on my own pew bench, and thinking out those little schemes for excuses, or for effect, which were to relieve me, or to advance me, in my college world. There was a pleasure, like the pleasure of dreaming about forgotten joys, in listening to the doctor's sermon. He began in the same half-embarrassed, half-awkward way and fumbled at his Bible leaves, and the poor pinched cushion, as he did long before. But as he went on with his rusty and polemic vigor, the poetry within him would now and then warm his soul into a burst of fervid eloquence, and his face would glow and his hand tremble, and the cushion and the Bible leaves be all forgot in the glow of his thought, until, with a half-cough and a pinch at the cushion, he fell back into his strong but treadmill argumentation. In the corner above was the stately, white-haired professor, wearing the old dignity of carriage, and a smile as bland as if the years had all been playthings, and had I seen him in his lecture-room, I dare say I should have found the same suavity of address, the same marvellous currency of talk, and the same infinite composure over the exploding retorts. Near him was the silver-haired old gentleman, with a very astute expression, who used to have an odd habit of tightening his cloak about his nether limbs. I could not see that his eye was any the less bright, nor did he seem less eager to catch at the handle of some witticism or bite of satire, to the poor student's cost. I remembered my old awe of him, I must say, with something of a grudge, but I had got fairly over it now. There are sharper griefs in life than a professor's talk. Farther on, I saw the long-faced, dark-haired man, who looked as if he were always near some explosive electric battery, 
or upon an insulated stool. He was, I believe, a man of fine feelings, but he had a way of reducing all action to dry, hard mathematical system, with very little poetry about it. I know there was not much poetry in his problems in physics, and still less in his half-yearly examinations, but I do not dread them now. Over opposite, I was glad to see still the aged head of the kind and generous old man who in my day presided over the college, and who carried with him the affections of each succeeding class, added to their respect for his learning. This seems a higher triumph to me now than it seemed then. A strong mind, or a cultivated mind, may challenge respect, but there is needed a noble one to win affection. A new man now filled his place in the president's seat, but he was one whom I had known and been proud to know. His figure was bent and thin, the very figure that an old Flemish master would have chosen for a scholar. His eye had a kind of piercing lustre, as if it had long been fixed on books, and his expression, when unrelieved by his affable smile, was that of hard midnight toil. With all his polish of mind, he was a gentleman at heart, and treated us always with a manly courtesy that is not forgotten. But of all the faces that used to be ranged below, four hundred men and boys, there was not one with whom to join hands and live back again. Their griefs, joy, and toil were chaining them to their labor of life each one in his thought coursing over a world as wide as my own, how many thousand worlds of thought upon this one world of ours. I stepped dreamily through the corridors of the old Athenaeum, thinking of that first fearful step, when the faces were new, and the stern tutor was strange, and the prolix levy so hard. I went up at night, and skulked around the buildings when the lights were blazing from all the windows and they were busy with their tasks, plain tasks and easy tasks, because they are certain tasks. Happy fellows, thought I, who have only to do what is set before you to be done. But the time is coming, and very fast, when you must not only do, but know what to do. The time is coming when, in place of your one master, you will have a thousand masters, masters of duty, of business, of pleasure and of grief giving you harder lessons, each one of them, than any of your fluxions. Morning will pass, and the noon will come, hot and scorching. End of Fourth Reverie, Section 2, Part 4